I think it's huge. And, you know, in my experience, when I work with clients who have these kind of functional GI issues, and you know, a lot of them are also working with functional medicine or nutrition and, and doing really good work with that. But when we get those viscera moving and moving in the right positions and orientations, um, we really see some positive gains. Oh, man, that is just so huge. All right, everyone. The Dr. Alex Show is brought to you by Shed Light Cold Lasers. And Shed Light Cold Lasers has been a game changer for us at HML professionally and personally at home. Personally, on a, on a personal note, I had a very bad bout of vertigo. And I got probably 85% there by going to a few different functional neurologists over the years to help me out with it. Then I bought this. And this is a game changer because one, it's portable. That means I can take it to the office, use it on patients all day, make sure it stays charged, come on home and then throw it in my pocket and use that home. And this is what cleared up my vertigo. Now, professionally, the way it's, game, it's uh, been the game changer for us in the office is that it has cut our results down by 50%. This can get used on just about anything, any disease disorder that you can think of, it can pretty much get used on. Now, as far as how it has helped us out, it's cut everything down by 50% on our times. So when we're working with our kids with special needs, uh, when we're working with our chronic neurological disorders, autoimmune diseases, to get those people into a good point that they're happy and that we're happy, times have been cut by 50%. You will definitely want to go check out shedlightcoldlasers.com or email Griswold at shedlightinformation at gmail.com, 518-338-6658. Well, all right, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Alex Show. And today we have a pretty fun guest on. His name is Dr. Oberst, Seth Oberst. Dr. Oberst, did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Yeah, Just you know. Just want to make sure. You know. Okay. So... As a lot of people know, Dr. Lauren, my wife and I are part of IAFNR, International Association of Functional Neurosciences and Re Rehabilitation. I think that's what they're calling themselves nowadays. They've changed their name a couple of times since we joined. Anyway, he gave an awesome presentation about breathing and it, it he's going to go into a lot of information just about how breathing affects not only our biomechanics, but our brain function, how it can affect our health as a whole, um, how to identify some aberrant breathing um, on yourself or maybe even someone you know. I, and we figured it'd be just a great episode to talk about all this. So Dr. Obers, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into it a little bit. And uh, I so appreciate what you guys are doing. Oh, it's much appreciated. Um, it, what I kind of wanted to start with actually was get to know you a little bit. What, what got you into um, the field you're in and what led you to where you're at now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, so I'm a, I'm a physical therapist and I've got my own practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, you know, I started out working um, after graduating physical therapy school. I wanted to work with, <clears throat> with athletes. And so I did um, a residency in sports therapy. And, you know, I found that rewarding, but I also found that um, there was a lot missing. And, a lot of times there, there seemed to be a, a lack of, of translation from what the person could do or could not do on the table to the field. 
And what I found was I was seeing the same patterns um, in the, the folks that I saw kind of more in the middle of the day who are the non-athletic folks, you know, the regular kind of more chronic persistent pain type scenarios. And I was really drawn to that. And um, because I found that they had problems that no one seemingly really could, could fix. And it felt really important, right? It's one thing to help a baseball player throw a little bit faster, or, you know, a, a, a football player run a little faster, but um, I wanted to, I, I thought that it's another thing for someone who's got headaches for 20 years to finally be able to, to do their job without having to take 12 aspirin a day or someone who couldn't sleep at night to finally be able to sleep. And what I found was in my, in the course of my study that a lot of this was stress related and, you know, I, I couldn't figure out why can't people relax on the table? Is it me? Are they, you know, are they nervous about me? Are they nervous about being here? Or is there something a little bit more fundamental? And as I was going through and I started to really look into the neuroscience of stress and what happens to the brain when we're stressed. And, um, and then there was a really natural transition from, from what happens to the brain when we're stressed to what happens when to the body when we're stressed. And one of the main connecting um, factors between brain and body, of course, is the breath. So it would make sense that how we are breathing is affecting both our body and our mind and is both an in, influenced by stress as an, and an influencer over stress. Um, and then, you know, from there, it just continued to, to, to grow. And I really started to look at the upper airways and what, what happens with our occlusion. So how our teeth touch and the position of our jaw and the position of our cranium and our tongue and our lips and all of these things, um, you know, together create how a person breathes and ultimately how they move. Because, you know, as I tell my clients, you know, we take 20 to 25,000 breaths a day and we will always sacrifice our body's position in space to help us breathe. It's the first thing we do when we come into this world and it's the last thing we do when we leave. So how we do it matters. Wow. You know, I think probably the most profound thing you said there is for everyone to probably take home right away is breath is controlled by stress or partially dictated by stress, but then you can also help control your stress with, with your breath. Absolutely. Yep. Meditation, controlled breathing. You know, an easy thing that you can try is if you have someone, um, you know, if you just think about taking your arm and moving it internally or externally or raising your arm up overhead, and then you take 20 or 30 very rapid stressful breaths and then recheck that range of motion, you will often see a, a change in that range of motion because you're changing the orientation and position of the rib cage and the pelvis. You're tonifying, you know, ex, uh, you know, increasing tone to muscles potentially. And so, yes, how we breathe absolutely influences how our body moves and how we move influences how we breathe. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, uh, if you don't mind, let's hit Nerdville and kind of work let's our way it. up. Sure. So with, uh, I guess, I guess from the bottom up is breath affected. Does breath affect, let's say the positioning of our feet, the postures of our legs, or are we well, talking mainly torso? <clears throat> no, I would argue that it does influence the position of, of every part in our body. You know, when we breathe in, we have to have a consummate expansion in our body to acu- to accommodate the airflow that's coming into the torso. Right. Yep. And so all parts of the body will expand or rotate outward to varying degrees to accommodate an inhalation. 
The opposite is true. When we exhale, our body rotates more inward, right? So we expand yep. and then we compress, right? And <clears throat> so if I adopt a position of my pelvis to accommodate potentially the movement of my viscera, my guts down into the pelvis, right? I may position my pelvis forward or to one side, right? To accommodate that, that movement then I will, by nature, if I'm changing the position of my pelvis, I have to change the position of the hip joint. If I change the position of the hip joint, by definition, I have to change the position of the knee joint. If I change the position of the knee joint, then you can kind of see where I'm going. I have to change the position of the tibia and the fibula, 100%. which then orients the calcaneus and the subtalar joint and then ultimately the arch into an internal or externally rotated position. Sure. When there is a, and, and that's normal. Our body should accommodate breath by rotating outward and inward based on the breath cycle. The, when we look at, you know, the co most common compensation that we see at the pelvis with breathing is a f anterior or forward um, tilt of the pelvis. So the pelvis yep. goes forward, right? Creating what some people call sway back. You could call that or excessive lumbar lordosis, you know, an increased arch of back. Yep. But all of them, you know, that's the most common compensation that we see is that pelvis moves forward. Now, you may see it move forward more on one side than the other, or both sides may go forward, depending on a person's kind of um, structure and, and their, you know, demands on them. But that's going to that's gonna orient the, the, the femurs closer to the pelvis, mm -hmm. right, which yep. is going to change internal and external rotation at the, at the hip joint, which will then, of course, change how the foot goes into, you know, what position the foot goes into. Sure. And then if we, then if we extrapolate that into walking, which is, I would argue the most fundamental human, you know, what it's a very fundamental human movement, right? It's locomotion yep. bipedal. And so if my pelvis is oriented forward, I'm not going to be able to get my hip behind me because I'm, I'm relatively in flexion. Yeah. So I'm going to lack hip extension. And so we need that hip extension in order to propel us forward. So if I can't get it from my hip, I'm going to get it from my foot or my lower leg, right? Absolutely. And so, so there's all these compensations that occur. And I would argue they arise from, at least in part, the strategies that we have developed to help us keep an open airway. Love it. Now, the, one of the things that come to mind is, this might be different. What do you think of dancers and gymnasts? Because they are the most lordotic people walking around. Is that because of what they do? Well, so um, if we use the example of gymnasts, right? So one of the strategies that they will use, um, and these are all, by the way, subconscious strategies. They're just trying to problem solve, right? Sure. And figure out how to stick a landing or you know perform certain movements. Yeah. But one of the things that has to happen is if I rotate the pelvis forward, far forward, mm -hmm. right? I'm very stable in that position. Because my vertebra, my lumbar spine, are all extended, and the and the um, facet joints are are pushing against each other. So it's very mm. mechanically stable. Yeah. Right. So if I'm stable there, then I can create a tremendous amount of pressure in my abdomen to to generate enough force to jump, sprint, and tw twist and turn. Right. Yep. But they may not be getting it from the per, you know ideal physiological positions. So Got what it. you've seen is they basically have reduced degrees of freedom in their back to create stability 
And then the excessive motion that they have to get, you know, the excessive flexibility to perform splits, Mm -hmm. et cetera, they're going to probably get, in my experience, from overstretching their joints. Yeah. Makes sense. Right? So they basically give up certain freedom in certain joints for stability, and then they gain that excessively in other joints for mobility. Sure. And that makes sense, right? I mean, you know, if you if you were to x-ray and MRI some of these backs uh, in, in gymnasts, even the really good ones, you're going to see lots of spondylolisthesis, spondylolysis, yeah. right? Which just basically means those vertebra are shoved forward almost pathologically, sure. right? And you yep. may even see some fractures. The body would rather break bones in the back than lose that stability in the back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and that may work for some of them, right? That allows tremendous amounts of of control and stability. But you know, sometimes that costs us our our you know ideal anatomy. And those yeah. are all trade offs that occur, I think, at high levels of of um, you know, athletic performance. Sure. Yeah, I just figured I'd go over the the uh, most extreme example of people totally. walking around there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think, um, there's also, we can't dismiss the influence of our, the structure that we're born with, right? There's certain people that are going to be biased towards being really good at gymnastics based on their shape yeah, compared to other people. Yeah, And, um, you know, I don't have the shape of a, of a gymnast, so I could try forever to be a gymnast. I'm not going to have that torso and pelvis combination that allows me to, to be explosive in that way. And, um, some people do. So, you know, I think it's a combination of their compensatory strategies and what they're born, you know, the, the structure that they're, they've, they're born with and develop. And, and, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this too. It's like, you know, gymnasts and dancing, what's the common, common thread there. They start very, very young. Yeah. Right. Why do they start young? Because that spine and that skeleton are movable still they're moldable Mm -hmm. and you can absolutely change the shape of those bones. And the earlier you started, the better, right. From their perspective, if the goal is to, to optimize shape for, for gymnastic performance or dancing performance. Yeah. And I suppose it is kind of like off topic, but it is interesting watching young athletes develop. Uh, I'll have my wife and I will have dancers, gymnasts, whoever come in, call it dancers and gymnasts. And you may not see them for a month or a few months and they come in and you're like, holy cow, what happened? And you start seeing the biomechanical changes. You see increased lordosis. You see insane upright posturing, almost to the extent that they are their their weight is shifted posteriorly and backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yep. but it it's almost within like a month's time. It's a huge shift that can occur in, in those young athletes. No doubt. And, you know, that's, that's to their advantage. If the goal is, is to attain a certain position and control, you know, the disadvantages of course, are those tissues well adapting to those positions? Yep. Which is, which is why they come and see people like us. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. At at least the very competitive ones, but correct. So then the thing that was most interesting to me, I got, well, a few things that are super interested in, but, uh, talk about with breathing, a lot of people don't know what the diaphragm is and what happens when that diaphragm pushes everything down. Right. So we have two diaphragms. We have a right one and a left one, right? And those sit underneath. And the reason I bring that up is most people think they just have one, but we actually have two. That's true. Um, And, you know, a common myth in my opinion is that people say, I need to breathe with my diaphragm. You know, you need to diaphragmatically breathe. 
And I think that's a really big misnomer because you can't breathe without your diaphragm. If we were to sever your phrenic nerves, right, which control your diaphragm, you would not be able to take a breath. That's true. Yeah. Because the diaphragm, think of the diaphragm like a plunger. So when you breathe in, the diaphragm descends, it goes down, and that in that changes the pressure dynamics between outside the body and inside the thorax. Yep. Right? That change in pressure causes air to flow from high to low pressure. Mm-hmm. Right. So it goes from higher pressure relatively outside the body to relatively lower pressure inside the body as the diaphragm contracts and descends down into the abdomen. Mm -hmm. As we exhale, of course, that reverse in the diaphragm relaxes. So an inhale is the active part for the the diaphragm and the exhale is the passive part for the diaphragm. What I think is what I see a lot of in my clinic and I I see a lot of kind of complex physical kind of pain and, and somatic syndromes. And one of the things I see a lot of is, is functional GI disorders. So people come in with abdominal pain or constipation or diarrhea or acid reflux or hernias, hiatal or inguinal, um, diast- diastasis recti, all kinds of different, you know, what I would lump together as functional GI disorders. Sure. And one of the things that we see is that when, you're di- when you breathe in, the diaphragms come down into the guts. And we got a whole lot of guts in our in our abdomen that are folded up and 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 curled and cur- curved all to fit in a very small area, mm-hmm. right? Well, when we breathe in, those get compressed even further, and they have to move to accommodate that descending diaphragm. The you know what we can see though is problems arise when that dissension is somewhat for, is for some reason limited. So if I've had, for example, an abdominal surgery, and we know this, there's, there's quite a few compelling liter- uh, studies that show that if you've had an abdominal surgery, something as, even something as simple as a laparoscopy, then you will have a reduction in the movement of your organs postoperatively. And I don't mean just like one week or you know, a month after, I'm talking years even after. Because of scar tissue? Well, so the, the theory is scar tissue, right? I would also argue that there's a neurological uh, uh, change that occurs because if think about it, if I'm breathing 20,000 times a day and my, my diaphragm is pumping my guts up and down. Well, now if I've had a, if I've had one or more open wounds into my abdomen, I'm not going to want that big massage of the diaphragm every, every, you know, five seconds. Yeah. So I might change and orient my torso. Maybe I tip the ribs forward Maybe I compress one side or the other if I've had more of an injury, you know, or a surgery, you know, injury on one side versus the other to reduce the amount of pressure that that diaphragm is putting on my, on my organs. Yeah. Over time though, that creates an increase in load on one side or both sides of the body because now I'm avoiding moving those organs and those organs embryologically, morphologically need to move. So if I can't get those to move over time, I'm changing the forces and pressures across my guts, which is just a series of open tubes. Yeah. Right. Right. So what I always tell my, what I always talked about with my clients is like, look, if you have a garden hose and you squeeze it or kink it or wrap it up in different ways, do you think water is going to flow differently through that hose? Right. Uh, Yeah. hundred percent. Why wouldn't it affect how our urine and bowel function occurs? Yeah. Right. So, you know, the liver, for example, which sits on the right side underneath the right diaphragm, <coughs> although it does come across the midline and come a little bit underneath the left diaphragm as well. It's a huge organ. People don't realize how big it is 
mm-hmm. five to six pounds on, a, on an adult, that has to move down and rotate to the left every inhale to accommodate that movement. Oh, I didn't know it rotates. It does rotate. Yeah. If you look at it embryologically and you look, there's some cool studies t- that look at, um, you know, CTs, mm-hmm. um, at max inhale and max exhale, it comes down and rotates to the left. So when you're looking down, it'll rotate counterclockwise. If you, so if you think about, if you think about a, a marker, if you put a mark underneath your right rib cage, mm-hmm. as you breathe in, that mark will go down and be relatively closer to the left. It will come to the, towards the midline. So it rotates down and I guess it would be counterclockwise. Yeah. Okay. Depending on how you're looking at it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. If you're looking at it from the top, it would be counterclockwise. Okay. So that occurs every breath. Well, hmm. if I, if I've had, a, if I've got, you know, and this is, I'm certainly, I'm sure that in your world, you see this a lot too. If I've got an inflamed liver, a congested liver, um, which, you know, a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is, you know, all of these things are, are rampant in kind of our toxified modern world. Yep. Then, you know, there's the nutritional component and the lifestyle component that definitely should affect it. But what about breathing? Yeah. It would make sense that if, you know, if anyone's held a liver, right, they are spongy and dense and they need to be moved. They mm-hmm. need to be massaged. And if the breath isn't doing that, we're going to have, I think, you know, it's going to contribute to some of the lymphatic drainage and, you know, kind of liver issues that we see. Man, that is huge. That is I think it's huge. huge. I think it's huge. And, you know, in my experience, when I work with clients who have these kind of functional GI issues, and you know, a lot of them are also working with functional medicine or nutrition and, and doing really good work with that. But when we get those viscera moving and moving in the right positions and orientations, um, we really see some positive gains. Oh, man, that is just so huge. I'm and about think to go about down this. rabbit hole. <laughs> well, and think about this. One Here's one more thing to think about. So your vagus nerve, right, which is huge in the, you know, it's, it's really... Thankfully, it's becoming much more mainstream as it should. It's an amazing nerve. But, you know, two thirds to three quarters, depending on what study you read, of vagus nerve signaling is from the gut to the brain. Mm -hmm. And it is innervating everything from the lungs. Well, innervates everything from the inner ear all the way down to the lungs. But in terms of the viscera, it's innervating all the organs up to the um, hepatic flexure of the colon. Every breath is a massage and a signal to that vagus nerve. You know, we are mapping our, our brain is mapping our gut too, right? And a lot of those signals that are coming from the gut up to the brain are telling us about metabolic demand. Wow. That's another, right? So if I'm not getting appropriate stimulation across the gut, then I'm not stimulating vagus nerve. Right. You know, everybody wants to hum and gargle and, and those kind of things. And those are great. I'm a fan. I I advise people to do those too, but we also got to stimulate the, all those nerve endings in the GI system. And what better way to do that than getting the viscera to move better and, you know, getting the diaphragms to descend, man, I am, I'm telling you there now, I'm now I'm just going through my patient list. I'm thinking about all my IBS. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about all my SIBO patients Yep. and how I probably have not harped breathing enough. Yep. Of course, we're all doing Vegas nerve exercises. Like you sure. had said for everyone not listening that, that vagus nerve, it controls all the organs and you can exercise it just like any other nerve. And one way to do it is it sounds goofy, but you can sing, you can hum, you can gargle. Uh, there's weird things like doing a, you can gag yourself and there's other stuff. We won't go down that road. <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't, it completely left me. I don't even think I remember the last time I heard vagus nerve stimulation with pressure. 
Yeah. That may have been yep. nine years ago, 10 years ago. Yep. Uh, that is huge. I, I would agree. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. And think about too, and think about too, when you're talking about things like SIBO and IBS, a lot of those have, there's an influence of valve dysfunction. Yes. Right. So pyloric valve, I see ileocecal valve. What's coordinating those? Vagus, vagus nerve. Yeah. Vagus nerve. So those valves are either too tight or too loose. Esophageal sphincter too, right? And acid reflux. Yeah. So, and think about this too. One other thing is that, you know, you're the, you know, a hiatal hernia, which is basically when the stomach pushes up underneath the diaphragm, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's your, there's your answer right there. We want to give people proton pump inhibitors and antacids for hiatal hernia and acid reflux. But what about pressures? Yeah. If this, if my organs are under excessive amounts of pressure because my, because I'm not breathing and I'm not getting proper expansion and, and, and compression rhythmically, then I'm going to push fluids up or down. Yeah. And, and that's a, that brings up a really good point because one of the most common GI issues is acid reflux or GERD or whatever yep. people want to call to that point. And yep. one of the causes that really can go overlooked is a hiatal hernia. Yes. And probably once or twice a week, we're sitting there in our office manipulating the rib cage and yep. particularly the lower rib cage and upper abdomen to get that hernia to come down. Yes. And to an extent we can fix it, or if not, we can completely fix it. Which um, I think is amazing. Right. And, and I've seen the same thing in my practice too, but it tells us that this is a, this is the point I'm trying to make is that this is a, um, movable mobile, um, system. It's not rigid right? Yeah. We take an MRI, you get it, you know, somebody gets an MRI or an X-ray or a CT scan. And that is only what their system was doing at the very moment that that picture was taken. Yeah. That's you know, true. it's like, yeah. I, it's like, I, you know, I look through my phone and there's pictures that I look really good. And there's pictures I look really bad or any of those an accurate representation of me. They're just an accurate representation of me in that moment that the photo was taken. Right. But this is a dynamic system. Right. And so things move and can change. And, and I think that that's a really important message for, I know, you know, this, and, and I'm sure you you, your, your clients do too, but for the listener out there, it's like your system is dynamic. Things can change if given the right stimulus. Right. Uh, so on the note of abdominal organs, anything in particular about other forgotten organs, like the pancreas, the spleen, um, well, so one of the things to think about with this, so all of them are, it's all affected, right? Everything is affected, whether it's, you know, spleen, pancreas, small intestine, large intestine. Don't forget about the gallbladder too, yep, right? I mean, yep. gallbladder is one of the most common surgeries. Yeah. And, oh man, and, and I, I'm not judging people for getting it, but oftentimes that it can get taken care of. You don't have we, to have that out. Right. We'd like to see, you know, all conservative measures kind of exhausted before. And unfortunately that's, that's not always what happens. Yeah. Um, but all of these organs respond to rhythmic movement. I mean, if you think about the pancreas, it's a both an endocrine and exocrine gland, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you've ever held a pancreas or looked at a pancreas, which probably most of your listeners haven't, but you may remember from, a, from some of your anatomy, it's, it's movable. It's mobile. Right. And so yeah. if I squeeze something, stuff's going to come out of it. If it's a gland on some yeah. level, right. So yeah. movement needs to occur through that system. And, um, 
and, 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 you know, the spleen is really important because of its inter- in- influence on the anti-inflammatory system via vagus nerve. Yeah. So, you know, Absolutely. vagus, you know, so vagus really influences, um, uh, splenic function and, and it's in, and it's role in the in- anti-inflammatory process of proper vagus nerve function. Sure. So, so I'll oh, go ahead. No, it's, that's, that's all well, I had. Yeah. All that is just so huge. Uh, so then something that I just thought of is the concept of hysteresis in the low back. Mm. So, uh, at what a lot of people, this is what I was taught in school and I don't know if the jury's out. So when we were going through school, even before we got to school, I was taught the discs, particularly the low back are the shock absorbers of the spine. But then you read books from like Stuart McGill out of Canada, and he's talking about how these things are hydraulic in nature, uh, and they don't, there's not a lot of give in these discs. It's more so the bony matrix of the vertebra that create a sponge effect, if you will. I'm sorry, like a an up and down effect. Um, and then with that, what a lot of people don't know is there's not a lot of good blood flow to the spine. So the way the low back is said to get its nutrients is basically water and nutrients will seep through the bones and in through the discs is breathing part of that process to create the correct pressures. Yes, absolutely. Because if, if my, if I am oriented in a position of rigidity or compression or, or restriction, whatever you want to describe, however you want to just, you know, describe it. So let's use the example of the gymnast that we used earlier. So mm-hmm. if I'm really extended, my back is extremely arched. Well, then I am going to have excessive amounts of compression on the back of the spine. And I'm going to have more relative opening on the front of the spine. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, that pressure squeezes fluid out. Right? Because yep. fluid moves from high to low concentration or high to low pressure. Yep. So if I'm, if I'm squeezing it and I'm not getting the rhythmic, if my diaphragm is not moving down, but is instead moving forward, relatively speaking, then every breath compresses my back more. Got it. So I'm not getting the rhythmic pumping, right? Yep. Um, And I think about this, I I really liken this to the analogy of, of ocean life, right? So if you've ever gone to the, gone to the beach, there's this there's this kind of wave or, you know, the tide comes in and comes out, right? The waves come in and come out. And sometimes they come up the beach and then after a while they come back down the beach, but they're always, you know, the the waves are always lapping forward and back. Mm -hmm. That is our primordial beginnings, right? And we still have that function in the body, right? This long tide or this oceanic kind of movement. And I, I believe that breathing is one of our kind of oceanic or primordial movements. And so if that's not coming up and down, if that's somehow distorted, um, either by a limited mo- motion of the, of the diaphragm or excessive amounts, um, then that is going to influence that, uh, that movement of blood and nutrients in and out of the discs and all joints. The same sure. thing happens in your teeth if you're clenching your jaw all the time. If you clench your teeth all the time, obviously you're going to break them. Why are you going to break them? Well, you have high pressure. How do, how do nutrients get into the teeth? They seep in. Yeah, that's true. Both from the outside, so the sal- you know the the acid base content in your mouth and your s- saliva and all the minerals in your saliva, but also from the roots. Well, if I'm clenched the whole time, nothing can move in because pressure is too high. 
Yeah. Huh. Right? It happens yeah. in our shoulder joints and our elbow. All of our joints depend on these same things. Um, and so, yeah, when we're stuck in one position and we can't move in and out of it, we're going to see problems over time. Man, golly, just love it. Well, let, let's talk about above the diaphragm. What happens with the lungs and the heart? Yeah. So every time we, you know, so as, as we breathe in that diaphragm goes down, the lungs have to expand. Right. Yep. And, and they fill from the bottom up, like filling up a glass of water. Mm-hmm. So if I'm, and if you, if you think about lungs, lungs are biggest, you know, they're broadest at the bottom and they narrow as they come to the top. Yep. Well, if I'm not getting proper diaphragmatic movement down into the guts, then I'm not going to fill the lungs as easily and as well. What that's going to do is that's going to, of course, influence oxygenation because if I can't, if, if the, there's most blood flow at the bottom of the lungs and the lungs are broadest at the bottom, but I'm only filling partially up, then I'm not getting as much delivery of oxygen into the blood. Right? Absolutely. And the same is true, you know, because we're continuing to talk about this kind of pressure model, um, some would call it like a hydrostat type model, then you're going to have issues with, you know, potentially the heart too, right? And I don't mean necessarily rhythmic rhythm problems, but you can get compression and changes in movement across the heart because it has to move to accommodate those lungs as it's tucked in, you know, um, for most people um, underneath that left um, lung. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to influence all of that, all of those those positions. One of the things that happens um, a lot too is that we tend to, um, in a compensatory strategy, we tend to compress the sternum down. And so if you look at an extreme example of people who have that pectus excavatum, like the caved in chest, mm-hmm. right? Think about what that does to pressures across the rib cage. That is an extreme example of a smushed yeah. lungs front to back. Yep. So if I can't expand front to back, well, then I'm going to have to accommodate elsewhere. And what you'll yeah. often see is people will have to bring the head forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if my sternum is, is smushed down, I'm trying to lift the rib cage with a breath in. Okay. I, I guess I never wondered why the chin would come forward, but now that well, there's sense. a variety of factors. There's a variety of reasons that a head could come forward. But if we think about it from the bottom up, think about what these two muscles behind the ears connect to. Those are called your sternocleidomastoids, right? Mm-hmm. Sterno meaning sternum and cloido meaning collarbone. When they contract, they approximate these two positions. So if I'm contra- if it's contracting, it's going to bring my head forward sometimes in an effort to lift the rib cage up. Got it. Which, which brings up the, that concept of what was taught by us or taught to us as, uh, muscles of second or secondary breathing muscles or accessory Accessory muscles of respiration muscle. Yes. Uh, well, let's go over that because we're talking aches and pains and if if you're not breathing right, then people are going to have all these issues with their chest, upper back, neck. Right. Well, I think that, so my take on it is this, is that if you do not have appropriate, um, diaphragmatic orientation and position, meaning the diaphragms don't move down, they move forward, relatively speaking. So the, the, they push yeah. forward rather than moving down because I can't control the movement of my guts. Yep. Then what's going to happen is I don't have appropriate intrinsic stability of the thorax and pelvis because I don't have appropriate abdominal function. 
So one of the ways that I'm going to help provide some stability and get movement, if I can't have it from down there, is I'm going to get it from my neck. So I'm going to squeeze with those neck muscles to help me feel something, Mm -hmm. help me feel stable and more controlled. And that's going to often create a lot of compression across these very delicate structures in the neck. Right. You know, your, you know, your first rib, as you, I know you are well aware, comes, you know, all the way up to the base of the neck through the, underneath that first rib is the totality of our airflow and the majority of our blood flow Yeah, to and from our head. Yeah. If that is getting squeezed, all the muscles that attach to it, then I'm going to really compensate in an effort to try to get more air. Cause I'm going to always prioritize airflow and then to a lesser degree, or I would argue, uh, blood flow. Yeah. Right. So we're always trying to get that. So if I'm using my neck to help me breathe, that is a really inefficient process with a short shelf life. Oh yeah. And so then that kind of brings up, uh, or at least where my mind goes with all of this is not only the neck tension and upper back issues that come with it, but headaches, uh, tension based he- headaches, migraines, um, a mix of the two. I, when, when we simply have someone in office learn to take five to 10 minutes, lay prone to work on some mindful breathing. And, uh, I, I'm sure you can validate this. When we lay prone, we tend to breathe better with our diaphragms. So think about what, so think about why that would be right. Cause of the pressure on the front. That's correct. Because I have, because now I have a solid constraint on my abdomen when I breathe in my diaphragm has no choice, but to go down. Yeah. And I got this spine, you know, I got a bony spine and a rib cage on the back that I don't have on my front, you know, my abdomen. Yeah. And, and so, it, so you're absolutely right. I've never thought about why I just knew that it does work. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things that you, you learn it, you take it as the clinical pearl and you run right. and you don't think about why, but sure. Um, but when we have people just do that and not even, I'm not even thinking about all these other de- 89,000 details you just went into. Sure. Um, that alone can start knocking out headaches. Absolutely. That's just, just well, simple to do. Well, right. And I think, you know, too, we have to keep in mind that you know, headaches are multifactorial, but ultimately, I mean, what does every cell really need? It needs to be able to deliver blood. That blood has to have oxygen. That oxygen needs to deliver electrons to create energy, to split water or make water and to create CO2. Yeah. And 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 then I have to be able to shuttle that CO2 out. Yep. Keep it at the right amount. Right. Because if I, if I have too low or too high, I got problems too. Yep. Right. Which is going to change respiration. Because by the way, you know, keep in mind that CO2 is really what drives respiration, not O2. Until you get below, I think it's like 80% oxygen saturation or something. Um, you know, certain altitude, then low oxygen will drive respiration, but CO2 is what drives it. So if we think about that in the terms of the head and neck, I mean, think about the demand of the brain for blood flow. I think it takes like, I can't remember the exact number, 10 or 20% of all blood flow is constantly going to the whole body is going to and from the brain. So 20% of our metabolites calories. So, right. So it's a high demand, you know, it's a high output engine. If it's not getting blood flow, to, in order to move oxygen and CO2 out, we're going to have problems. And, you know, headaches or pain is merely a signal of danger. 
right? Danger, danger, danger. We're not getting appropriate fuel substrates, mm -hmm. right? To make energy and help you think. And so we're going to produce this pain. So you pay, start paying attention to us. Right. Um, go into uh, breathing in, in, in general. Uh, you just talked about CO2 as um, what is going to dictate breathing because breathing is more or less a, a feedback mechanism unless we're, we're unless we're cortically consciously taking over it's ruled by co2 like you said so that's the cool thing about breathing is that it is both conscious and subconscious and the reason i i, I think it's a really important influence over the stress response is it's one of those few things that we can both consciously and subconsciously control so it's that kind of link between um the conscious and unconscious or subconscious, right? Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, we have receptors in our brainstem for carbon dioxide and oxygen and pH, you know, acid base balance, all these different things, we have kinds of receptors, um, including in our cerebral spinal fluid. And the brain is trying to always keep all of those markers in balance. And what happens though, is when we are chronically in a state, for example, of hyperventilation, so breathing more than we need to for a given task, what we tend to do is blow off or exhale too much carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide levels get lower mm -hmm. and the brain stem, this part of the brain that's sensing all these different markers gets more sensitive. It gets trigger happy which creates this feedback loop where I breathe more than I need to which signals me to breathe more, which yep. then lowers my CO2, which raises all that stuff. And, and keep in mind that those areas of the brainstem feed right up into the danger centers or the kind of warning centers in our brain. I'm simplifying here a little bit like the amygdala and the limbic system. Yep. That then feed forward into a, into a kind of panic type state, right? Or more about, of an anxiety state. I was about to say, then this is basically anxiety physiology 101. Exactly. So, you know, think about traditionally, and we don't see many people do this anymore, but if you remember on like on, you'd watch an old like 80s or 90s sitcom or something, and someone would be having a panic attack and they would give them a brown paper bag to breathe into. Mm -hmm. Right. Why are they doing that? Because they're having them breathe back in their own ex exhaled CO2. Yep. which transiently raises the, the carbon dioxide in their blood, which helps calm them down. Yep. Yep. Which it, it it's, it's true. It works. It's, it's yeah. just physiology. Right. And, it, and it's beautiful. Um, as a matter of fact, we were working with a traumatized patient and right there in the office had a panic attack and mm. had a, a good thing. She had a little uh, uh, brown paper bag on her and, and, and used it. And, yep. uh, it was actually a learning experience for me. So I'm, I just ordered some off Amazon. to have right. them around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're cheap things. You know, you just, you know, we used to have them around all the time when we would take them in with our lunch, but, uh, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah. Do don't do that anymore. Cause everything's fancy and it's got an ice pack built in and all <laughs> that right. stuff. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Arcane. But yeah. So, you know, so the breathing is really connecting both conscious and subconscious. And so, you know, if we're aware of these connections, then we can start to make different choices about, about being intentional with our breath, the positions that our body is in so that we can optimize, um, you know, these, these factors. So then, um, let's kind of go over things you look at or things that other people could even identify in themselves with posture or things of that nature that could indicate an aberrant breathing pattern. Definitely. So, 
Um, th there's a whole host of, of things that, that folks can do. Um, I actually would start at the top. So the number one thing that I would, I always want people to understand is, are you breathing at rest through your nose or through your mouth? Ah, uh, yeah. We haven't even, you could do a whole show on just breathing in through your nose. <laughs> we could, we could. Yes. But if you think about this, right? So if I'm at rest and I'm breathing through my mouth, mouth breathing is a stress response. So when does any healthy animal breathe through their mouth? Only when they are hot, like a dog's trying to cool themselves off, they're yep. sick or they're sprinting full out. Like you might see in the, you know, Kentucky Derby. Yep. But all mammals, including humans should at rest, breathe through their nose with their lips sealed and the tongue suctioned to the roof of the mouth. So, you know, for the listeners that are listening to this at home, when you're, you know, stop what you're doing right now and ask yourself, what, how am I breathing right now as I'm listening to this? Yeah. If your tongue is shoved at the floor of your mouth or between your teeth, right? We see a lot of that where they posture oh, the yes. tongue in between the teeth. What that leaves is if you open your mouth and look in the mirror and you see those little indents called scalloping. Yes. That is because you are shoving your teeth, your tongue against your teeth and not up to the roof of the mouth. Got it. What that creates then is certainly postural changes. Also, you know, blood gas changes as well, because we don't oxygenate as well mouth breathing as we do tongue, right? You know, I'm sorry, nasal breathing. Mm -hmm. um, but it also changes cranial nerve function, right? The signaling to the nerves up into our brain. You know, our face is full of all these nerve endings that tell us where we are in space and what we're doing with our mouth and our jaw. Yeah. If that's aberrant, then my brain is going to be getting distorted signals, just like it does from the gut when we have distorted breathing. Yeah. So that's where I start with people is what's your mouth, what's your tongue, lips, and jaw doing? Got it. Um, and then we just work our way down, right? If you look in the mirror and you look at yourself breathe, do you see your neck contract and light up every time you take a breath in? If so, yes. The shoulders come right. up. Yeah. The rib cage should expand forward and back and side to side. Mm -hmm. It should not lift up with a normal breath. You know, yes. I'm talking like a normal at rest breath. It's normal for that. If you're really, really exerting to have yes. a bit more of a heave. Um, and the rib, the, the belly should not protrude out forward oh. as much as. So I think, I think one of the misnomers is like, you know, this deep belly breathing. Well, okay. what should happen is that you should have op, you should have enough abdominal um, intrinsic automatic function that when you breathe in, the diaphragm goes down. If the belly is pooching out and the example I always use is like, you know, these very thin, like, uh, some, you know, women who do yoga, for example, mm -hmm. and you'll have them take a breath in and their belly will just go straight out. Like, like they look like they're pregnant or bloated, right. Yeah. Even though they're not, Yeah, that is unopposed diaphragmatic action that is pushing things forward rather than down. Got and it. so what you'll often see is that the rib cage is actually not getting much expansion in that situation. So the bottoms of the ribs are flaring open, but yep. the upper rib cage is not opening. Got it. So they're not getting that proper expansion compression or, con you know, expansion contraction. Yeah. So essentially the, it's got to be coming from the lower rib cage. Uh, you mean in the, in the instances of the, of the, like the belly pooching? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We Got want it. the entire rib cage to move open and close. Yep. Like a billows. Yep. Right. Not just the lower ribs or the, you know, upper, you know, or just lifting the rib cage. Right. 
Um, how about something I know that we keep an eye on because it it's something that when it's ingrained in your head, you just can check on everyone. Um, if they're standing or supine, man, if I see a belly that just sinks right in and there's just nothing there, that tells me that I know that things are not getting pushed. Um, I'll like, of course I'll see the rib ex expansion across the board with that person, but it's almost like, it's almost like that. Not only is that belly flat and this person can be just very, very skinny, but it is just sunken in. Like there's just mm -hmm. nothing there. Yeah. So that might be a, a diaphragm diaphragm excursion problem. So maybe the diaphragm is not moving in as much as it should be. You know, we okay. would also want to look at the position of their pelvis. Um, and what their sure. lower back is doing. Uh, sometimes that's a, sometimes that's a abdominal tone problem. So maybe they have, you know, really poor abdominal, um, tone. And I don't mean tone, like they should walk around and, you know, squeeze their abs, like they're trying to have a six pack, but they functionally, yeah. they don't have any control of that core. Um, and it's interesting in my experience, the, those folks tend to, when they were kids, babies, little kids, not do very much crawling. Um, and be sometimes, uh, you know, if you ask their history, they'll oftentimes they have a history of like, um, I had to have OT cause I was low tone or I had, you know, um, I was kind of, I was always hitting my milestones a little bit slower. Yep. And, and that's, and that's the majority of our patients are kids with needs and we'll see them. I, I'll see that all the time with, mm -hmm. uh, with, with kiddos. So with, with kiddos, we, uh, definitely uh, get on their breathing, but we definitely got to do more. But with that, uh, you had mentioned something earlier that really clicked with me. And that was when you breathe out, I'm sorry, when you breathe in, you're pushing your ab abdomen down. And yes. that is allowing the vagus nerve to fire, which is then the vagus nerve is then giving feedback and telling that brain where those guts are. Correct. Because most of the time for all these parents and that, or people listening, children with special needs outside of learning disorders like dyslexia, throw that aside for a second. They don't feel their bodies. Correct. Absolutely. Which yep. is a complicating factor to all of this, but. It, well, I think, I think, you know, what it means to me is, is that they are not, here's how I describe it to, to folks. You need an accurate map to move through the world. If you came in, you know, I live in Atlanta, it's a big city. If you flew in and I gave you a map with just, you know, the, the highways, you could get around. Okay. But you're not, you know, if I say, meet me at, you know, this restaurant, you're going to have no idea where that is. Yeah. That will be very stressful for you. Mm -hmm. Right. 100%. So what we want is we want an accurate map because when we have a more accurate map, we can, we can better use resources. I might find that restaurant, but I'm going to drive all over the city trying to find it. If you give me a detailed map, I can go right there. Yep. And I, I think that, you know, our job is as therapists, chiropractors, doctors, whatever, you know, we are is to help give our patients a clearer map. Yep. And so in a more accurate map too. And so, you know, breathing is a great way because we do it so many times a day that even just putting a person in a specific position teaching them to breathe and fill and unfill or, you know, empty, fill and empty in those positions, even if it's 15 breaths a day makes it can make a profound difference in a person's understanding of where their body is in space, man. Well, and I'm, 
kind of all over the place, but something I got to get out of you is um, you had talked about teeth earlier. And what's fascinating yeah. is I think a lot of people have a lot of mouth work done. Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to think of one person that just has not had copious amounts of work done in their mouth. Um, you mean like dental work, dental, crowns, yes. root canals? Yes. Cavity let's talk fills. About, let's talk. Yes. Yes. Especially cavity fills. Let's talk about how breathing affects that. Cause boy, that was a, that was a big one when you <clears> went over that in the presentation. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of different factors at play here, right? One is the occlusion. So how the teeth touch. If, if we have a mal occlusion, which most of us have, right? We're going to hit teeth excessively on one side more, right? That's going to affect nutrient and fluid flow within the tooth, as we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but also if I'm breathing through my mouth, I am making the mouth more acidic. I am drying the mouth out. And remember a lot of the minerals that maintain our tooth, tooth health come from our saliva. Yep. So if I'm breathing and moving air across the mouth, I'm dehydrating the mouth, I'm drying out saliva. Therefore, I'm making the tooth drier. Therefore, I'm not remineralizing the tooth. There is a strong correlation in the literature between um, mouth breathing and dental decay. Yeah. There's also a strong correlation between mouth breathing or, you know, low tongue posture and um, mouth development. Right. Because the tongue up to the roof of the mouth and lips sealed creates equal forces across the teeth. So the yep. force is pushing in on the teeth equal the force is pushing out of the teeth. And so what we get is we get this nice forward and lateral development or growth of the, of the palate. And that allows for more room for the tongue, which then allows for a bigger sinus cavity and nasal passages to allow us to breathe through the nose. So, so mouth breathers could be people, unfortunately, that may have a mouth or a jaw that looks narrow, narrowed and high. Yep. Mm -hmm. Got yep. it. And then, of course, our dental procedures uh, only tend to exacerbate that, right? We pull teeth or use headgear, which is what I had, which was awful, or, you know, um, you know, lots of constrictive braces. And they're trying to make the teeth fit together, but they're not asking the question of why don't these teeth fit together. Yeah. Right? Yes. And it's often because of the position and, and orientation of the tongue, lips, jaw, and I would argue the rest of the body. So a lot of my work that I do with clients is in concert with dentists that are great. They're really forward thinking dentists to get the rest of the body in alignment. So that when they go get this dental work done, they're in the right positions. Yes. And, uh, in earlier I'd mentioned, you know, uh, breathing through the nose and also just now, um, mouth breathing, but something important about breathing through the nose is it, a couple basic things that at least I know of, and I'm sure you know a lot more is it filters it, it filters the air. Um, so that's good for all sorts of things on top of in today's world we live in with uh, pandemics going on. Um, but it filters it, it moistens it, and it warms it. Yes. Which are all important, but are there any it other? Tends to, it tends to slow it down too. Ah, okay. Yeah. So when you slow it down, the diaphragm has more time to descend into the abdomen and come back up. Yeah. And also because of slowing it down, it allows those molecules to mix a little bit more. Um, we also produce nitric oxide in our paranasal sinuses. When we mix that air and we have time to mix it in, in the, in the nose, then we're also, um, 
uh, improving the vasodilatory effect. Nitric oxide is a vasodilator. Yeah, and it, it's a uh, it, it, vasodilator, which is obviously needed for all sorts of things, but people with issues that involve small blood vessels. So where the smallest blood vessels are, i.e. your hands, your feet, your brain, your eyes, yep. um, and elsewhere, if you have issues there, it can be related to breathing. Uh, absolutely. One of the best ways to know, you know, one of the screens that we look at for folks um, to know if they have breathing issues is do you have, you know, the screen, screen questionnaires I have is do you have cold hands and feet or a cold nose? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because it means you're not oxygenating as well as you could. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you're blowing off more CO2, which is a vaso, which has a vasoconstricting effect. Yeah. So, so you're getting a double whammy. You're not mixing with nitric oxide and you're not maintaining appropriate levels of CO2. Yep. Yep. Uh, just a twofold effect. Right. Um, now with the, uh, with the jaw, I can't remember if it, if it was just something you had mentioned uh, just today or even in your, in your presentation, but with proper breathing, do you think that could help contribute to people needing less work like braces and headgear? Well, I think if you look at the, the work of Weston A. Price. Um, oh, yeah. Forgot who, about him. <laughs> yeah. Who really looked at, um, you know, indigenous peoples and the size of their palate, the straightness of their teeth. And you compare it to our, you know, kind of world where we have crooked teeth, small mouths. You know, his argument was that it was it was largely fat soluble vitamins and minerals that were um, playing a role in dental arch development. Which it's hard to argue against that, and there's studies that would you know agree with that now. Yes, but I also would say that if you are, I think it's multifactorial, and one of the things that happens when we're missing these appropriate appropriate nutrients and minerals is we tend to get more inflamed. When we're more inflamed, it's harder to breathe through your nose just another safety pin cycle. Right. So, so I think that yes, in my opinion, and I don't have a singular study to show you, but there are, there's growing amounts of, you know, we're kind of waking up to this more and more yeah. that it, I think if you could create the perfect kid in terms of oral facial development, mm -hmm. you would have, you know, obviously a, a mineral and, and vitamin rich, you know, whole foods, chewy foods diet, but you would also make sure that that child is breathing through their nose. Their tongue is up to the roof of the mouth. Their lips are sealed. They don't have a lingual frenum. You know, their tongue, they're not tongue tied. Their yep. fascia is moving well. I think absolutely that would allow for straight teeth. Yeah. And if you know, look at it, and if you look at the population, I mean, if you ask people who come in and the rare instance that you would have someone that would come in with straight teeth and they didn't have braces, you will see a resting posture of nose breathing. That. I, I, I'd agree a hundred percent. Um, I, I know that was kind of a hard question to answer. It's just trying to let people know that, holy cow, this can just affect anything. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I wish I knew that. I wish my parents knew this when I was little. Yeah. Oh man. hundred percent. Right. So I guess we kind of got to wrap up, but something that we pay attention to in our office are like a lot of people are vital signs and it's maybe up in the air, but what should be the resting our respiratory rate for like, called an adult? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the traditional, um, kind of normal tidal ventilation rate. If you look at the, you know, your typical textbook is anywhere from 10 to 18 or 12, even sometimes 12 to 20, 20 breaths. Yeah. Which is a lot, 
per minute. That's by the way, that's per minute. I would, I like my folks to be at ideally 10 to 12. Yes, that's, and I'm hundred percent agreement there. I think that we, we breathe too much. Um, ideally you would be taking a breath about every five seconds. Yeah. Which is crazy to think when, uh, if you, if you do think about that, um, a breath every five seconds, but, um, it, I, I think it should be that way. So then, um, any other tips or tricks, things that people can do? Like we got patients laying face down. Of course we manipulate and adjust and do our thing. Um, what are other things that people can do for themselves at home to work on their breathing? You know, this is going to sound a little bit out there perhaps, but one of the best things that you can do for, for your breathing is to lay on the ground. Love it. Lay on the ground and move yeah. in different positions. If you're going to watch TV, lay on your stomach, then lay on your side, lay on your back, you know, sit in different positions, but get on the floor. And the reason I say that is because that provides a constraint that causes a potentially a positive change in your breathing pattern. Yeah. When we sit on these malleable surfaces all day, cushy chairs, cushy couches, cushy beds, what happens is that we just adopt the position of most ease for breathing. Yep. Because there's no constraint on the rib cage. So the rib cage just goes where it wants to go. But yeah. if we lay on the floor and do some different, you know, in, in different positions, don't always lay on your stomach or always lay on your back, move around, roll around side to side, front and back, that changes the shape of your ribs because gravity is pushing you down and your body has to, sh to accommodate on the hard surface. You literally kind of smush out like a water balloon. Yeah, because there's no give. We want your body to give Yes. by changing positions. So I just recommend people lay on the, get on the ground more. Love it. How about bands? Uh, one, one thing I was taught was having a, having a band around the diaphragm and work on breathing. To like you're saying to provide a little bit of resistance, so you resistance. breathe into that. Yes. I think that that has some indications for certain people. I would say that the it depends on their on their pattern. For some people, bands might be problematic because they tend to push out and overinflate to try to expand that band, or it might mm -hmm. be too much. I think it has some merit, you know. But it, again, it's context dependent. You know, I I like the whole ground thing because. Um, not, not to get into people's beliefs or anything, but for a lot of years, we were walking this planet with nothing cushy, not sleeping on anything very nice at all. Um, so I think our genes are very used to having us on hard surfaces. Look at your dog. Watch, watch your dog on the floor, right? When he sleeps, he doesn't lay there for eight hours in one position because it's uncomfortable after a while. So he has yeah. to change positions. What does that cause over time? A dynamic breathing strategy. Yeah, rolling. He expands one side, then he rolls over, he expands the other side. Then he lays on his you know, stomach and he expands the back, right? And when we sleep on these really soft surfaces or sit on these really soft surfaces, we never change because we never get that stimulus. Yeah, which now, I mean, you could just go into a whole topic about sleep hygiene on that note. I mean, oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, anything else you got for things that people can do? Um, you or know, places I, I, to look into websites, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing I would always, I think an easy place to start is breathe low and slow. Love it. You know, and what that means is just every time you take a, you know, take five minutes and when you breathe at the end of your exhalation, so the end of your exhale, pause for three seconds before you breathe back in. 
What that will do is allow your diaphragm to come back up underneath your rib cage a little bit more. And then your next exhale will allow it to come back down. So it pumps more up and down. So that post exhalation pause, really helpful. It also stimulates vagus. We know that, that an exhale and pause tends to increase vagal activity, which is yes. anti-inflammatory and all the stuff that we talked about. So um, just slow your breathing down a little bit. It's okay to feel an urge to, to, to breathe faster. You don't yeah. have to give in to that urge. Right. Yeah, it's a good reminder to slow down and just remember there isn't a tiger after you. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, do you have uh, anything else for everyone? Um, for everyone in, in Atlanta or otherwise, where are you located? How can people find you? Yeah. So I, like I said, I have a practice here in Atlanta. Um, I'm technically in, in the Brookhaven kind of area, um, but I see people from all over um, the city and all over the state. And I have some people that come in from, from out of state as well. Um, and, you know, you can, I've got a website at sethoberst.com. Um, and then you can find me on social media as well. Um, cool. using that, using that name. So, yeah. Well, well now we got another name for someone to send people to in Atlanta. That's right. Uh, uh we have, we have some friends out of Atlanta and the first thing I think of Atlanta is Peachtree city. I want to go and ride go, uh, golf carts all over the place in Peachtree. They city. do have it. They've got it laid out pretty, they're pretty sweet down there. It's just like a little golf cart community. It's, it's pretty nifty. I mean, talk about needing an accurate map. It just sounds like a, <laughs> It sounds pretty awesome to try to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty cool though. Awesome. Well, it, thanks again for coming on. It, it, it means a lot. Is anything else you got to say? Anything that's popped in your no, head? No, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, um, you know, I hope that your listeners found this, uh, valuable. Oh, I'm sure they have. It, it, it hits just about anything. And like we said, we could go into breathing in through your nose alone and then sleep hygiene alone. Is. Yeah. Yeah. You, maybe we need to do a, a separate, conver another conversation. Cause you know, I think the big thing that, you know, we haven't talked about that probably should at some point is, is what happens in your airway while you're sleeping. You know, we, if you wanted to, I, I'll have to reach out and just get you on again. Cause doing a whole episode about breathing in through the nose and that would be huge. Cause sure. after your presentation, I started diving into breathing a little bit more and then stuff about, uh, the airway and nighttime came up and I was like, Oh my gosh, I yep. can't keep up with it. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. But I think, I think it's, if you can't breathe at night, you got no shot of repairing anything. Yeah. And, and, and mind you people, those are the people most likely like this pillow doesn't work. This bed doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't work halfway through the night. I have to go switch to this bed or I have to go climb in bed with my kid or, or only the couch works on Saturdays or <laughs> whatever yes. it is. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, these are people that are, are having a hard time breathing at night. They're choking. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're constantly waking up, you know, albeit if like blood sugars and things like that are stable, it's just, yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I'll be, I'll be reaching out again and bother you again and we'll have to go over that. So it sounds great. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And then if I don't hear from you in the meantime, maybe we'll see you around, uh, I Afner, uh, this year. That sounds great. Thanks so cool. much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Appreciate it. Bye. All right, everyone. The Dr. Alex Show is brought to you by Apex Energetics, apexenergetics.com. First of all, to learn more about Apex Energetics, head on over to that website. If you want to get Apex Energetics directly, uh, please call them 1-800-736-4381, or you can shop our online store. 
you can get to our online store at myhcpstore.com. Username is Dr. Alex. Otherwise, if you'd like to find a doctor that uses Apex Energetics, you can give them a call or go to the website and they'll direct you to a doc in your area that should be doing very good work with Apex Energetics. Apex has just been instrumental in our lives professionally and personally. About six years ago, we went through one of the most hellacious traumas that you can think of. And if it weren't for Apex with their stress support line of products, I probably would not be here. Point blank, period. And in the office, you, making the switch from other lines to Apex Energetics has sped up our results with our patients, supporting them through their healthcare needs, um, probably by 25%. Um, if not, if not more. And when it comes to Apex Energetics, we just want to remind everyone that we are here to not cure diseases, making claims. We're here supporting people, increasing their healthcare needs and helping them achieve their goals. Apexenergetics.com. The Dr. Alex Show is hosted by myself, a nerd, Dr. Alex Nelson. I'm a chiropractor board certified in functional neurology and childhood neurodevelopmental disorders. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or most any of your other favorite podcast apps. The Dr. Alex Show is a production of Fredcasts. Think, speak, act.